Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We are continuing with our Profiles in Pediatric Sports Medicine series with our next guest as a recently retired physician from the East Coast. I've personally known this guest since my days as a resident interested in pediatric sports medicine, and I actually met him at our American Academy of Pediatrics and AMSSM meetings. He has had a never-ending passion for advocacy for our young athletes, and I actually frequently quote one of his studies on injury rates in high school sports, and we'll talk about that. So without further delay, let's get to talking with our guest today. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Rice. Dr. Rice is a native of Brooklyn and completed his undergrad at Columbia College in the MD-PhD program, followed by his medical school at New York University. He then traveled to the West Coast to complete his pediatrics residency at the Children's Hospital in Seattle at the University of Washington, including earning his Master's of Public Health there. He was then on faculty at the University of Washington in sports medicine until 1996, and then moved back east to New Jersey, where he directed the Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship at Jersey Shore University Medical Center in Neptune, New Jersey. He retired from his practice in 2019, but is currently a professor emeritus for Hackensack Meridian Health. He has served in multiple leadership positions over his career, including roles on the Executive Committee for the AAP Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, as well as the Board of Trustees for the American College of Sports Medicine. He was president of the New Jersey chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and was a longtime chair of the Health and Science Policy Committee for ACSM. He's also the winner of multiple awards honoring his contributions to pediatric sports medicine, including the Thomas Schaefer Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Marathon Medical Directors Association, Pediatrician of the Year from the New Jersey chapter of the AAP, and a Citation Award, and he was only the second pediatrician to have received this award at the time of being honored with this from ACSM, in addition to numerous other honors. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Glad to be with you. Well, I'm glad to to get you on. Before we get started, just on talking about your career in medicine, I was really interested, looking back at your background, that you were originally interested in actually sports broadcasting. So tell me a little bit about that background. Well, I'll tell you where I start with sports. I was born in Brooklyn, 1945. There was no TV then. And you follow a little bit of sports in the newspapers. And Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Well, around that time, I was very interested in sports. And my mother gave me pairs of pajamas, shorts and short sleeve shirts. I had four or five of them. I named them all for different teams. And I'd wear them. I'd play phony baseball, play whatever. And each uniform was a different team. So right down there, I was interested in sports. And I grew up following sports. And I played some tennis and the like in high school. But I would go to football games. I'd sit in the stands with one of the dads, who was the father of my uh, tennis partner. And I would point things out on the, every play would happen. I'd point things out. Then my father would notice when we were watching the NFL on TV in the early 1960s, I'd be watching the games and I would see a play on television, I'd point something out, and three seconds later, the announcers would point out the same thing. And so we said, you should do sports broadcasting when you get to mm-hmm. I got to Columbia, and they have a, an activities night in the auditorium. Everybody's, all the freshmen are there. And they had a thing on the radio station. They put together a very funny, fun thing. And they said they do sports casting. So I went down there to do it, and I got involved right away. And I was very good statistician. So as a statistician, I was in the booth with the broadcasters who were seniors and juniors, and I was a freshman, and I did that. And I was also very interested in soccer, and so I would go to soccer games that happened before football games, and then I would do a little capsule of a game at halftime. And so that got me started doing that. And then sophomore year, I broadcast half of the soccer game, second half of the soccer game, that was on tape, that was played on Sunday nights. Then my junior and senior year, three of us got together and we were all the main people. I was with David Rubin, who went on to become dean of the uh, Syracuse School of Journalism. Hmm. He was a famous guy and he trained all those guys who watch on TV. He trained all of them. So we were three wonderful broadcasters. And I now have received through my third partner, David Shaw, who's a chemistry guy out in Wisconsin, 
but he had recordings of all of our games and he put them all on little discs. And so now I have a plug into my computer of thumb drive. And I can listen to six or seven of the games I broadcast. Oh, that's cool. So, <laughs> so I got involved. I also did a show called Personalities in Sports. And I went and I did interviews with various players, teams, different people. So we did a talk with the Rangers and people like, like that. So I got to do a lot of that sports casting. And then after I finished that, and I went on to go to NYU to medical school, three years later, they started doing television on cable TV in New York City. And Jim Miller, who was the head of radio station senior year, went on to work for the cable television company. And he did the games. And I was the color man with him. So I did color for Columbia football and Columbia basketball for four more years, all the way through my medical school career. So I did seven or eight years worth of broadcasting, and I was pretty good at it. And I listened to these things, and I'm amazed at how well we sounded. Three people who were, we were really good. Well, we did for two full years together and the years afterward. So that's when I got started in sports. In high school, I was a chemistry major. I got to Columbia University, and I was very interested in chemistry. And if you're a chemistry major, you take all the physics you need, all the calculus you need, all the chemistry you need. The only thing missing is biology. So in 1965, when the war started in Vietnam, they had a lottery for what number you're going to get picked in the draft. And I was number 70. I was screwed because I'm 70. I'm screwed. So now I, I decided maybe I should take biology because maybe I can get into medicine and, and avoid the draft. So it was then my father found out that both NYU and Albert Einstein had MD-PhD programs. I did chemistry research on the poison ivy molecule at Columbia. And we, we, we knew what it was. It was, a, it was a phenol and it had a 15 length carbon chain at the third position. And then what we did is we worked with the U.S. Army, try to figure out why it was so immunogenic. And as a result, I was with, the, with a group of graduate students who made some different side branches. And so we made that. So I was able to talk my way into getting into NYU. Got to NYU and I discovered I didn't like the biochemistry department. I didn't like the pharmacology department either. So what was I going to do? So I got there. There were seven of us in, the, in our class. And the seven of us meet for half a day with our professor named Bernie Lane. And he would talk to us for three hours. And then we'd go to some classes. You know, I, I love hearing that story about the sports broadcasting. I I wish I actually I had known that earlier. We would have had some great discussions because I don't know if you know this about me, but my background and part of actually why I do the podcasting is I, I was in college radio. I did more of the music side of things than the sports side of things, but obviously always had a passion for sports. I admire anybody that could be the color person or even the play by play, especially for any sort of sports broadcasting, because it just always amazes me how people can can do that. But yeah, I was in the whole radio uh, role of everything too. So I, 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 that was my big thing in college was being with uh, student radio. I did both. So anyway, during my freshman year in medical school, I had to spend part of my time with a mentor. And I was, my mentor was Bernard B. Levine, who was a, who was a internal medicine man. And he would take me on the wards and teach me how to do cardiology auscultations. He had a lab. He was working on penicillin allergy. He had people had bad penicillin allergy. So he was working on a, a lab trying to figure out what was going on. So I had to come up with a with a project myself. So I went into his lab. And his lab was very small. He had two other people there. And me, third, it was very small. But we were working on penicillin allergy, trying to desensitize patients. So then one of my other seven MD-PhD students said to me, you know, you should really get out of that lab. It's too small. Go to the Public Health Research Institute, just a couple of blocks down the road here, and you can go there, and there are a couple of people there doing immunology. So I went there, and I worked with Marvin Fishman and Frank Adler, and they worked on something that was really weird and strange at the time. No one ever heard of it. People thought it was crazy. Well, what is this stuff? It's called immunogenic RNA, and I did my PhD on immunogenic RNA, and I was one of the first people to publish how we were able to, I would take rabbits, I would inject their belly with mineral oil. Four days later, I would sacrifice them, open up the belly, take out the stuff that was there, and then I would make a gradient of, of albumin, 33, 20, 15, 8, 11, 8, and 5, spin them in centrifuge, 
and we get on all these different levels and we suck off the different levels and then we test them for what kind of things they could do. Some were just filled with oil, that's why they're so light. Others ingested a lot of beads and others had immunogenic RNA. And we took the immunogenic RNA and we put that into rat cells, rat lymphone cells, to see what happened. And out would come 7S and 19S antibodies. Ta-da! That was my thesis. I was, this was 1971 to 1974. So I'm 50 years ahead of immunogenic RNA vaccine. So that was my first real push into immunology. So thinking about immunology, then where was I going to go? I decided I wasn't going into internal medicine because that was too intellectually high. And I wanted to go into something pediatrics fit me better. I wasn't going to do surgery. I wasn't going to do OBGYN. I wasn't going to do psychiatry. But so pediatrics worse. And I decided I want to leave New York. I was in New York four years at Columbia, seven years at an MD, PhD land in NYU. I wasn't, I was going to leave. So I needed to look for places. And one of the places that had good people in pathology was Ralph Wedgwood, who was an immunologist. He was in Seattle. And then in, in Chandler Stetson, who was our former chair at NYU, was down in uh, University of Florida. Then there was someone at UCLA. So I went to those places to look, and I wound up choosing Seattle. In Seattle, my first year, Garrick, who was the head of sports medicine there, Jim Garrick, he was interested in a number of things. He was not really interested in being an orthopedist per se. He didn't like to do the surgeries. He liked to do things with people who had overuse injuries and things of that sort. So he was looking at injuries, injury rates, and he came up with an idea to see if he could get a grant to hire four athletic trainers to go into four high schools in Seattle and record all the injuries as well as care for the athletes. He, he decided to do that, and he gathered all the data, and they published injury data from those three years of four. So, so he did that. And it turns out that one of the schools he did was at Harborview Medical Center, well, was, was Garfield High School. So let me get back to, to how I got to Harborview. I got to Harborview because you have to spend three months of your second year out of the children's hospital and into Harborview Medical Center, which is as an outpatient pediatric clinic and is the trauma center and the major medical center for Seattle and as a busy emergency department. That's how I got down there. And James McCann, who was the uh, head of our pediatric clinic, told the three of us, I want you to spend one afternoon a week out of the clinic, and you can do whatever you want, just come up with some project. So those two guys had projects. I didn't have a project. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had heard Garrick lecture, of course. I would heard Garrick give this, well, Garrick gave this lecture to our group my first year. And he talked about sports medicine. He talked about what it meant, what a primary care person would need to do if you were at a high school covering a sports team. So we went through that with us. And he explained you need to know when the nearest phone is. You need to have a dime if it's a pay phone back in those days. And, and other things like that. How to get the, a emergency vehicle into a field from the backside, have a way have a key to open the lock for that, and all those other things. So that was very interesting to me, but I didn't see what relevance that had to me. I had no idea. So now a year later, I'm at Harborview. There's an orthopedic surgeon named St. Elmo Newton, who was the team doctor for Garfield. He and his wife bought a boat that year. And she said, let's go away these four weekends on the boat. And he said, I can't. I got high school football. And he said, can't you find someone to help you? He was also attending at Harborview one day a week, and he was in his clinic the other days. So he couldn't get the orthopedic guys because they were too busy. So he came to the pediatric guy and say, you know, maybe you have someone who want to do it. So they approached me and say, you want to do this? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Every day I would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Until And they would page me at the hospital. And I was taking care of kids who, who were one year old and up on a ward and they'd call me at five minutes to noon. And I got a page on the old-fashioned pagers. You think, oh, my God, another admission. After 10 days, I said, you know what? Stop calling me. I'll do it. That's how I started. 
So you mean to tell me, Steve, that your start in, in pediatric sports medicine was so an orthopedic surgeon can go away on the weekends to not be on his boat? That's basically how it got started. It got started with Garrick's, I love it. Garrick's lecture and then that. So I got there and Garfield was one of the four high schools that had the athletic trainer. All four high schools, they ended in June of 75. All four high schools couldn't afford to, to keep them. So they all went away. And the guy from Garfield's guy named Rich Carey, he went back to Indiana. Ten years later, he was named the National Athletic Training Association High School Trainer of the Year. And they thought, they said he was so good. When I got there, the first game was the middle of the season. It was October 1. And it was the start of the season, started early September. I got there. It was the middle of the year. They had one student trainer. That's all they had. But the problem was, Rich Carey was so good, he took care of everybody and everything. So nobody learned off of him because he took care of it. He took care of it. He took care of it. And then I realized, wow, you need to have a, not good enough to just have someone there. You have to have a program to teach them these things. So I taught the, thought about the things that Garrick had said. He also, for his educational piece, had made six videotapes on neck injuries, ankle injuries, knee injuries, hip injuries, overuse injuries. And I listened to those on the tapes. So I learned a lot. I wrote them down on a piece of paper, stuffed in my pocket just in case I needed them. So that's where I, what I saw from that point. Said I needed to develop a program that could prevent managed sports injury. So now as I was getting into my third year, what am I going to do? I didn't have an avenue to know where I was going to find sports medicine. I spent a month of my third year in a lab with Irv Bernstein. He was a hematology oncology guy who was working on mice on certain things that were similar to what I was doing. And so I went to his lab. And I did some experiments with him. I created my same gradient, separated cells. We said, oh, we have something we can write about. So I submitted two cancer research fellowship applications, and I got funded for both of those. And then I went to deal with the clinical scholars program at the University of Washington. My consultant, my faculty consultant said, why don't you put something in for sports medicine idea you can come up so I put in some crazy idea for that. I went for an interview, and they said, Steve, who's your faculty supporter? Who's supporting you? So what do you mean, who's supporting me? I don't even know who's supporting me. They said, well, everybody else has a faculty person who's supporting you so that when you finish your fellowship, you'll have a straight line to a job. I said, well, I don't, I don't have anybody. And they made me an alternate. Great prize that was. So then I'm, it's now coming up. I'm going to start July 1, hematology and oncology, and work with Irv Bernstein at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. And it's now June the 7th. And I'm back on the same ward I was on before, where we, we admit kids. And we have a, a meeting every one morning a week with the chairman of the department. Chairman of the department was Beverly Morgan. And she came along. And she said, Steve, what are you doing on July 1? I said, you know what I'm doing on July 1? I'm going with Herb Bernstein. He said, well, Dr. Garrick is leaving on July 1, and Chris Myers, his non-orthopedic guy, is leaving on July 1. And your name came up, but for only one year, because we have someone else waiting who has one more year of dermatology to go before he's going to take the job. So I can give you a one-year halftime position. And the, and the name of the doctor who, who was the other doctor happens to be John Olerud, father of Major League Baseball player, John Olerud. So it's the world circled small. So I said, well, I'll consider it. And I went through interview after interview after interview. And then I got to the point where it was, I mean, with the athletic director, Mike Lude. It's four o'clock in the afternoon, June 30th. He says, you have the job starting in the morning. That's a and little so, abrupt way to get started. So that's how I got started in sports medicine. I had to tell her Bernstein, I'm not coming. He accepted that. And I got started that way. So I started as team physician. After I was at Garfield for my first month, I want to keep first three months. I want to keep going. I want to keep going. And so I, I said, maybe we can get a next resident who's going to come here for the next three months to pick up from me and keep it going because they need to keep it going. And so, no, they didn't want to do it. So I kept it going. They let me keep it going. And so I was able to go back the next year. And that's what got me enough experience to be considered. And so that's that's how I got started. That's my broadcasting. That's my sports medicine. I got started, and that's how I got started. And I then developed the model program. I came up with the idea of developing a program that would have six parts to it. One is to educate people. 
The second is to do an assessment of their facilities like the JCAH does. Then the third thing would be to see what you need to have in a training room. The fourth thing would be what you need to have in the way of things you need to for your first aid kit, for your notebook, for your this. And the fifth would be to, to keep statistics, like injury statistics, like Garrick did. And the sixth would be to evaluate and give them feedback. That was my six parts thing. And I wrote a grant for it. And I got funded by the U.S. Department of Education as part of their model programs. I got that. And that was, then that was done in the Seattle high schools. Now, it was written in conjunction with the Seattle high schools because they called me my first couple of months as team doc saying, we need to find more team doctors. We don't have enough team doctors. If you could find us more doctors, we'd love it. I said, well, maybe I could start an educational program with them. And that's where we came up. We wrote this grant together. And so the name of that person is, again, it's a small world. It's Frank Inslee, the father of now governor of Washington, Jay Inslee. So, I mean, it's a small world that I, that I travel in. So Frank was, was the athletic director, but they had had a problem with Chris Thompson a couple of years before in which he got a neck injury and spinal cord injury. And they went, so he saw my program as a way to help them advance and learn more. So that's why he, he wanted to do that. And so I started to teach my class, which I developed into a 40-hour class I wrote a 288-page manual. I taught my class. Everyone, every coach in Seattle had to take it. And then, then we went around to do it after three years. We went before a national joint educational review panel, JDRP. And then I got approved for that. And that meant I could go nationwide. And so I can bring it all around the country and be part of the National Diffusion Network. So I taught it overall. 159 times taught a 40-hour educational class, including two for the U.S. State Department, one in Europe, in England for, uh, for, for Africa and Europe, and one in Hawaii for Asia and, uh, and South America. So I, I taught 159 times, maybe 20 people a class, over 3,000 people. And I taught high school student trainers, coaches, school nurses, team physicians. So I really had a chance to spread around. And it was all taught at a level that was non, not technical. It was all at a level that, that every, all these people could understand it. And I had all kinds of diagrams and methods and stuff like that. So that's what kept me going. And I was funded for that for many years because I, would, I went back before that review panel and uh, so I, I got that funded in 82. I went back in 87, again in 95. And I was able to, to get that go again. Now, when I went before that panel, there were three of us who go before the panel. And you go back to Washington, D.C. and present the panel. I was the only one accepted all three times. People put together the best they could do. But I had really done it a thorough job. and. And so that was, that was one. And I came up with a, with addition to my class, I came up with a, uh, a National Leadership Institute. And I would have one week during the summer, people would come to Seattle. We wouldn't have that many people come, but it was a big, thick book, like 700 pages, and it covered every, every element of the program. And there were people there that, that, that came, and that made it work. And one of them was, was Frank Walters, who was an athletic trainer uh, in Texas, and he came up and he he got hired to handle D.C. and he introduced the program in D.C. and the ten high schools, and he hired the ten trainers, and they were doing it, and then he moved down to Florida, and now he's I guess almost retired, but he's one of the people who who does the NFL concussion observers, so he was another person. I really did a lot there. I did a tremendous amount there. And that was just out there in Seattle. And I started the Harborview Clinic, which you want to know about too, right? Yeah. You published a little bit about this program too, didn't you? Yes, I did publish 
Yeah, I, I, I was looking up some stuff because I wanted to find the article that I wanted you to talk a little bit about because I, your your article is one I quote frequently in clinic just in reference to high school running. And I know you published this with actually one of my colleagues here in St. Louis, uh, Tony Margarita, who's a physiatrist. I quote that study a lot from the perspective that I think opens people's eyes a little bit as far as injury rates in female cross-country runners of actually having a higher incidence than even in football. And obviously those are overuse injuries and things like that. But I have that article. I make sure I'll put that in the show notes for people to reference to. And I know that I I came across your other article where you had had this program introduced in the schools that showed that actually it was was even without athletic trainers, correct? That they were able to identify injuries? What's that? Without athletic trainers. Yeah. Well, yeah, to actually be able to identify and, and, and manage some of these injuries in, in schools that maybe didn't have resources of an athletic well, one trainer. One school I can tell you about was one in, in Kansas. It was a high school in a district that had maybe 70 students and six teachers. So you can't really hire an athletic trainer for those people. Right. So these people had to come up with how to handle it. And they handled it by each coach serving as a trainer for another coach in another season. They knew the knowledge, but they they were the lookouts for the health, and they were able to do very well. And we we also saw in in Seattle, we had one Catholic school that had a great athletic director and a great football coach, and they followed what we wanted to do. They they eliminated two a days, went to one a day, and they followed stuff, and their injury rate declined about 80% in football season because he just saw it was there, and he held someone out until ready to go back. And and that was the way it went. And I was able to teach the people at Garfield High School. Let me just explain to you who, what Garfield High School is. It's an African-American school, and it had two people there that everybody in the world knows about. One of them was Jimi Hendrix, and the other was Quincy Jones. Those are two graduates. So you know what kind of a school it was. It was a great music school. It was a great sports school. And it was an academic school because when they had the desegregation, they made Garfield High School the desegregation high school for honors classes. So honors kids from every other high school had to come to Garfield to take their honors classes. And the students there, those honors students, all those white kids, they want to be just like the black kids because they saw how great the black culture was in that community. And that's how I got my athletic healthcare system started, really, because I was at a Martin Luther King dinner. Maybe it was 1983, and I was sitting with George Fleming, who was former University of Washington football player, played up in Canadian Football League for a while, and he was a state senator. And he listened to me. He said, Steve, who are you? What are you doing here? Why do you? So I told him what I was doing. He said, wow, can you come down and come to my office and talk to my assistant, and maybe we can get something? So I came down, and I would talk with Ron Sims was his assistant, and they wrote a legislation, passed a bill, creating an athletic health care and training program that set up to look at, introduce things. And so my, they want to be really rough on people. They said, if you don't have everything on the first aid kit list, you don't have this, you don't have that, you're going to be fined. So the governor vetoed some of that, but he still appointed the committee. I was the co-chair. And we wrote this lengthy report, and that kind of kicked it off in the state of Washington for other school districts who were interested in adopting the program. So that's kind of what really helped get it moving around and popular. Now, Ron Sims went on to become the King County Councilman, and and he ran unopposed. He ran for U.S. Senator, and he lost a close race. And then he became Assistant Secretary uh, in, the, in the Obama years. So he was like an important guy too. So I bumped into a lot of people who helped me along the way, who were really gifted people. And that's what helped me grow my programs and make things work. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Stephen Rice. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. 
So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Now, back to the podcast. So my Harborview Clinic, I started in 1980 because Harborview is in the middle of the city. It's near Garfield, it's near Franklin, which is similar, and there are other low-income places nearby. And it's a hospital that takes care of anybody and everybody. I want to take care of those athletes in the schools that didn't have any resources. So we set up the clinic to do that. Clinic really was very effective because we would meet students. That's where Tony Margarita trained with me and other people. Stanley Herring, you know who Stan Herring is? I know Stan well. Stan's been on the podcast, yep. Well, my very first resident who I had as as a student in my clinic was Stan Herring. He was the first person who I had. I had to get permission from his chairman, Barbara De La Tour, to be able to accept someone. And he was the first one who came to my clinic. So I got Stan Herring started on this process too. Steve Anderson rotated through my clinic as well. All those people that I touched, the many, many, many people that I touched and got them started. I mean, they know much more than I know now. I mean, let's face it, they're, they're, they're really better than I. But the point is that I got them, I gave them a place to get started. And that's what I, why I think of what I did is, is so helpful and and, and so refreshing to, to see that that happen and take off. So what brought you back to New Jersey then after all that time in Washington? Well, what brought me back to New Jersey was a gentleman from South Carolina by the name of Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich had his contract with America in 1994. And he was elected in 94. And he took hold of Congress in January of 1995. And he wanted to go after all kinds of programs and projects what he did was he looked at on his computer about where the money was being allocated. And I was part of the National Diffusion Network. And every two years, you have to apply for a new grant for two more years, two more years, two more years. So I had to apply for where November and, and May split of the year. So I had to apply in May to start on September 1. And so I wrote my grant up sent it in, be adjudicated over the summer. And he went to Clinton. He said, I'm sequestering funds from this part of the, of the uh, Department of Education. The whole grant, the whole fund for all 90 programs and all 50 plus facilitators was $14 million. So it was like chump change. And he was, and he was going to hold that off. And then he, he, held, he held stuff off over the beginning of the summer, and Clinton had to meet with them and figure out how are we going to do this. They agreed on some things, but they didn't save this program. I got sent a package on August 25th, and my grant, scheduled to start on September 1, was gone. And that was a big chunk of what I was earning. I wasn't earning much money, but that was a big chunk of what I was earning. I was doing some stuff down at, in Tacoma at Pacific Sports Medicine and doing some part-time work at University of Puget Sound and a little bit at Harborview. So I, that was a big chunk of what I was doing was gone. 
I had someone who has come up with an idea for me to do something in Seattle that was possible, but would take a lot of piecing together to do that. And then, interestingly enough, I got a call from Al Cabasso at Jersey Shore saying, Steve, you're one of nine pediatric graduates, uh, people who passed the, the CAQ. We're looking to start a sports medicine fellowship here at Jersey Shore. Do you know someone, or maybe you even, who might be able to be willing to come here to do that? And when I couldn't make it, I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then, then they brought me back over the course of the year. So that was just a good fortune of that phone call. And I was able to get started. But I was a person of many ideas. So now, in the early 1990s, my friend Louis Maharam and others were interested in setting up a sports medicine residency program, not a fellowship program, but a residency program. And I was definitely part of that because I thought that by going three years in one thing and one year of sports medicine, you couldn't know enough. I said, every other residency, every other post-residency is three years, three years in cardiology, just studying the heart, three years in neurology, three years in immunology, three years in this and that. So why is sports medicine one year? I said, we should set up a program that's, that starts from scratch, starts from the first year of medical school, you go into sports medicine fellowship. You do one year of a rotating kind of internship, and then you start to really learn in detail about wellness, about, about nutrition, about ophthalmology, about this, about that. So you would know everything about everything. In four years, you could do that. And you could get enough time working with different teams you would get really good, and it would be really, it would really be good. We formed the American Board of Sports Medicine, and we incorporated. But the person who was doing that was a little bit of a weird guy, and oddly enough, he committed suicide. So we we worked on setting up an examination for taking a sports medicine board, and so we we were in many disciplines. Each of us represented a different discipline, and we put together a 300 question exam and we came up with questions and we and we did it and, and we administered the exam twice and I got like 240 some odd questions out of 300 right which was very good which means not not easy enough to get them all right and so we did that and we went to to the American board of whatever it is all the interrelated ones in, in Chicago or Probably ABMS, the American Board of Medical Specialties, would be my guess. Yeah. Yep. We went there and we explained. And he said, this is what you got to do. Got to get all these guys to agree to bring you on board and accept that. We went back and that was like going to be a hard sell, especially when this guy passed away. So so we was, so we just sort of like didn't do anything. Then the next year, that's when they, they formed the Sports Medicine CAQ. Mm -hmm. And I sat on the first... Angoff committee to review the questions on pediatrics in there. So I sat on that as well. So my beginning was really, really basic and thorough in the world of sports medicine. So the so let's go back to Harborview. So we started this clinic, took care of all these people. We trained a lot of good people who were coming through as residents, medical students, people who were interested in medicine, people interested in athletic training. We had all kinds of trainees. And we had a physical therapist, two of them there. We had Tony there. We had had a, another pediatrician. And so we had four or five doctors going in the room together. And we learned from one another. And that was a great way to learn. Because it wasn't about making money. It wasn't about how many patients you saw. We would just go in and we would do it. And that was a terrific learning experience to be able to do that. Um, you couldn't do that today because nobody could afford to consider even doing that. But, but that was, again, one of the things that I learned a lot on. And I went down to Pacific Sports Medicine, and I joined with orthopedists. And one of the things that, that they had me do was to set up outreach to high schools to do educational seminars with them. And so I brought together a group of, for instance, cross-country coaches. And I said, you know, you see this data on cross-country, all these injuries people get, overuse. How do you how do you train them? What can you do to, to train them? What can make it work? 
And so one of them came up with, he said, I have a great idea. What I did the very first day was I had everybody go out and run on a set route for 45 minutes. And 22 and a half minutes, they turn around and come back. But they'd know where they turned around. So I'd know how much they ran. They all came back at the same time. And that way they, they would, someone runs 10 miles, someone runs two miles. Whatever it is, I would know what they did. So that was one way. And he said, the next thing I did was I would pair people, fast people with fast people, slow people with slow people, once around the perimeter of the school. So the fast people would run many more perimeters than the slower people. But they all would come in at the same time at the end because they were, they were running and they weren't feeling bad about being slow and they were getting rest and time to recover in between. I said, well, that's, that's ingenious. I taught that to these other coaches. They said, wow, that's a great idea. So that's how you can, you could teach by just bringing people together, you know, eight or 10 or 15 coaches from a given district and they could, could come up with ideas for themselves. And I, of course, could come away with those ideas. So that was really very, very helpful uh, learning tool for me as well. So I keep learning by different methods and many other people do. Yeah. For sure. So Steve, if you uh, could say something that you were most proud about that you accomplished during your career in sports medicine, what would that be? Well, it would be about the education of people. I learned that by hearing a quote from Admiral McRaven, who was the uh, was the head of the Navy SEALs that got Osama bin Laden. And he spoke at the 2018 Naval Academy graduation. And he said, you learn something. Take that tidbit and train, teach it to 10 other people. And have them teach the 10 other people. Have them teach the 10 other people. So we go from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000. Eventually, everyone will know it. And that's what I think that I was able to do because I was able to teach people basic things in a way they could learn it and teach it to others, not so complicated or complex. And I could keep the ripple, keep rippling, keep rippling, keep rippling. And, and that would, to me, that was a thing that made me feel the very, very best and it was to, to be able to do that, to do that. That was great. And also, one of the other things I did enjoy was taking care of some wonderful athletes as well. My favorite athlete of all time, I think I took care of, was Warren Moon, the quarterback for the Huskies. And he was wonderful, wonderful to take care of. And he was great. We met at a 2009, you know, he graduated in 1978 or something like that. We met at a 2009 meeting in Seattle, and he was there speaking about what you should tell, what what a professional athlete knows about sports and what you should tell them and some things about how they should think of the look at the world and stuff like that. So he was spoke at this meeting in Seattle, and it was a huge room, maybe 300 people in the room. I was near the back of the room, and I get up to ask a question, introduce yourself, to introduce myself. Hi, Warren Moon, it's Dr. Steve Rice. And so that was a wonderful, warm feeling as well. Another thing I remember very much is, is my authorship and knowledge of putting cuboids in place. You know about cuboid syndrome? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. familiar with that. Yes. I learned that from Dr. Stanley Newell. Stanley Newell wrote an article in 1980 that was in, in uh, Physician Sports Medicine. He was in Seattle. He was one of the people who came down and saw folks in the training room at University of Washington. And so when I was going to that 2009 meeting, I put in for him, for two of us, to do a, uh, a lecture on cuboid. I had written some articles in 1995 on cuboid. We did that together. We had 300 people in the room, and we split up the talk, and it was absolutely amazing. We were very, very well received. And we, we worked on it. I got to the hotel a couple of days early. He came down. His son was very good at artwork. And so he did some art stuff for us. And we put on a great, great thing. And I remember that so vividly. And, and I know he's still alive as well as me. And uh, and so that's another great moment. I do have some, some great moments in taking care of Garfield athletes that I want to share with you if you have a couple of minutes. Who did I take care of at Garfield High School? Well, first one I want to share with you was a women's basketball player named Joyce Walker. 
And Joyce, I would come there on Monday afternoons. I'd see people down the train room. They'd go up and watch them practice. The boys would practice one time. The girls would practice on the same court another time. So Joyce Walker would go up, and she would practice with the boys. And she was every bit, she was about 5'10", kind of stocky, but she was very strong. And she could go up against them. She could drive, and she could stop and shoot and do everything. They could. She did everything they could do, everything they could do, as well as they could do it. And they had some very fine players there. So I said to myself, you know, she could be the first woman to play for the Harlem Globetrotters. Ha, ha, ha. So... She goes on and she goes to Louisiana Tech University. She scores more than 20 points a game for four years, rebounds, All-American all four years. I was wrong. She was the third woman to play for the Globetrotters. And when we were out there this summer, we were out and Garfield had its 100th anniversary. So packed, they built a brand new gymnasium. It's packed with thousands of people. And she was there. And at the end, um, now Bruce Harrell, who is the mayor of Seattle, was on Garfield High School football team my first year in 75. And then he went on to four years University of Washington. So I knew him well. And he got up at the end and he said, there's Joyce Walker. And I was there. I went to that meeting and I knew someone who got me the, to, to go. And he went and brought Joyce over to me. And she said, Dr. Wright, she gave me all and pictures and stuff like that. But there's a picture of her. There's a hallway of there. They're all stars. They're Lifetime Achievement Award people. There's a picture of her, one picture of her in a Garfield uniform, and the other was spinning a basketball on her finger in a Harlem Globetrotter uniform. So, so that's one. And the other person was someone named Lamar Hurd. And Lamar was a wonderful athlete. He had a, a great, he'd go up for a jump shot and he'd hang in the air. Then we'd go up in the air, come down, Lamar's still up, then he'd shoot. And so I nicknamed him Hang Time. Well, it turns out he was also a great hurdler. So he'd go over these things and he'd fly over them. And so they have a picture on the, in that Hall of Fame thing of him over a hurdle, spread eagle out. And what does it say? Hang time. Now he sprained his ankle. And there's another great story because whenever I teach a class, and I still do, every six weeks I do 30 medical students. He sprained his ankle. Coach said, I was doing a practice. He said, he sprained his ankle. He lives five minutes away. I live five minutes away from the school. He said, bring him over to me. Brought him over to me, iced him down. I examined him. I iced him down. Put a felt horseshoe with compression wrap around it. Gave him a pair of crutches. I said, don't walk on it. Come back every day. We'll check you. We'll keep going with you. So we, we took off that thing. We saw how, how he pushed away the swelling from around the fibula. And then we made him maybe three or four days of that compression. Then we got him and he was able to walk. And then he was able to walk. I said, okay, if you can walk, let's stand at the foul line, shoot foul shots. Don't go after a missed ball. Just shoot. Okay. When he could do a little bit more, he could, then we could have him dribble the ball, straight line, just dribble the ball. Then when he could hop on his good foot and hop on his bad foot, then he could, then he could, uh, he could go up, maybe take a jump shot. And so anyway, the whole process from beginning so 100% better was 10 days. And he was he was able to come back in 10 days and play well. Well, next year, they had another guy named Craig Ferguson, who was the star of that team, who was a guy who was 15 points a game, a lot of rebounds, stuff like that. He sprained his on a game on a Wednesday night. Coach called me up late. I said, bring him over. Brought him over at 1030 at night. He did the same thing with him. Now, if you compare his statistics, it was the middle of the season. Compare his first half statistics. The second half statistics, they're identical. So now they get into the state playoffs in the championship game. And Craig gets three fouls, or maybe even four fouls, in the third quarter. And the coach has to sit him down. Well, who does he put in his place? He put in his place the guy who played the three and a half games that Craig missed the whole game in a crucial time. And that guy comes in, scores eight points, gets six rebounds. They go on to win the game. And so the coach said to me, you know, Doc, now I understand. Because if I had tried to play Craig when he was hurt, he wouldn't have been as good. And we wouldn't have had anybody on the bench with any experience. So now I learned my lesson. You don't put somebody back on the, on the court till they're 100%. And you know what? They see how this other guy's doing, and they want to get better fast. They go back. Otherwise, you could be a, uh, 
you know, what happened with Lou Gehrig and who was it? Was the Chapman was the guy who was who was the uh, Gehrig replaced for the Yankees? That one I don't know. I'm a Cubs fan, so I don't know the Yankees history as well. No, I I remember whatever it was. It was someone who, who never got to play again, and so he got hurt and he never got to play again. So those there was one more story worth telling, and that's about Joyce's sister Shirley. Shirley was skinnier, more built like a cross country runner, six foot tall, very quick. Again, a lot of playoff stories because these girls were good. She would grab a rebound, pass an outlet pass, sprint down the court. By then, the ball would be down at the foul line. They'd throw a bounce pass to her. She'd pick it up, put it in for layup every time. Rebound, pass, sprint, layup. Now, there were no three-point shots in those days. There were no 30-second no clock. I mean, four eight-minute quarters, 32 minutes to a game. What was the average score of a women's game in those days? What was the average score of a women's game? No clue. Around 60 points. 60? 60. Is that high or low? I'd say that's high. Well, this team scored 80 points in their four games each, 80 games each, because she got it, got rid of it, got down the court, but layup, bingo, 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 bingo. And then one last, one last story about them. Just, so there was one game they were playing against a team that was excellent, that every year was in the, in the championship level game. And they were down by two points with less than 10 seconds to go. And they had a girl named Tracy Hellerton. And she inbounded the pass, the ball. She dribbled up the court, not super fast. Got to midcourt around five seconds. The other team, of course, was packed in around the foul circle, foul lanes. So you couldn't get five people there. So yeah, she got past midcourt, dribbled once or twice, five, four, three, puts a shot up, and a la Steph Curry. She turns and walks back to the bench. Doesn't wait to see it go swish. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You had that much confidence that you made that shot and you sent to overtime? But they didn't. And so that's that's an on one final, final, final story. First coach was Fernando Mortigue, he was very good. Then came Al Hairston. And Al played for a little while in the NBA. And he went go on to coach at Seattle University. But he had 15 kids at Garfield, all African-Americans, all really good basketball players, really good basketball players. So what he did was he said, okay, there's 15 of you. I'm going to put five of you and five of you and five of you. I'm going to put you out. I'm going to want you to play 100% effort for as long as, as you possibly can, offense, Defense, full court press, full pressure, full pressure. And he replaced them like you replace a hockey line every three minutes, something like that. So these and these other teams would have six or eight guys they could count on. And they're up against these guys who are really good and they're all the same. And if you came in the middle of the second quarter and I asked you, pick the first team, second team, and third team, you wouldn't know who you wouldn't know who you were. <laughs> so they were they were that good. And so it was really terrific to see see such intensity and such uh, and of course, everybody felt like they were part of the team because they were, and they were uh, wonderful. And of course, they were great in track and all sorts of stuff like that. They were, they would win the, all those races. That was the beauty of being a Garfield coach, a Garfield team doctor. I worked with so many great, great athletes, and the University of Washington was no different. We had a lot of great athletes there too. How about any regrets, Steve? I, I, you know, I was interested that you mentioned about starting up the sports medicine residency program as a graduate of a two-year fellowship program. I wholeheartedly endorse a two-year fellowship program. I know there was an effort that was trying to be made a few years ago to try and go to two-year fellowships, and I think it's kind of fallen by the wayside again. But boy, coming out of a two-year fellowship and going into practice, especially at a place where I was the only primary care sports medicine physician there, I felt so much more prepared and so much more comfortable being able to start off right off the bat after two years rather than just one. But any regrets that you have of what you couldn't accomplish during your career of the stuff? Well, that you no, I, I had no fellowship. I had no fellowship training. Mm -hmm. I had no real mentor. I mean, Garrick helped a little bit, but but I Garrick had me help him do physical exams at the University of Washington during one of the years in which. I was assigned the uh, abdomen and hernias. That was my place. But 
I didn't really have anyone who was a true mentor to me in anything. I did. I did it, figured out everything myself. And when I got to Jersey Shore, my regret at Jersey Shore was I trained 28 fellows over these years, but I was alone. I had, an, I had a receptionist and me and my fellow or fellows. And that's all I had. And I didn't have anyone else. And I, when I got to be 68, I said, you know, I'm getting close to retirement. Maybe you can hire someone to work with me and keep this going. Nope, I'm just did. And then I had my stroke five years ago and I kept going for a year and a half, but then they, they, they just axed me. I was old enough to be, uh, they would be axed, but that was my regret. I had no one with me and they closed my clinic. We were, we were the number one and either one or two of the highest positive rate from patients of any clinic in Jersey Shore. And the other one was Charlie Dodsey, who was from Ghana and who was a terrific pulmonary pediatric doctor. And he has a great, great personality. So we were the two top people. And Charlie's still practicing. So so the, the, the problem is that we old folks knew how to do it. And yet they wouldn't hire anybody to help us out. And I was I didn't even have a nurse. Didn't have a nurse. My fellows checked everybody in. No. No, I didn't have a nurse, didn't have anyone doing anything. It was me doing everything. But the reason they said to me was, well, we can't replace you. You can do everything. You do everything. You take care of everything. You're irreplaceable. Ta-da! So that's my regret um, that I would have loved to. And now they're beginning to bring it back with one of my fellows from 15 years ago to do part-time stuff. But, but it's really very strange. Well, we end our podcast, Steve, with something that we call the Pearl of the Podcast. And so it's your chance to give a pearl to our listeners. Uh, it could be anything because normally we do it based on a topic that we're discussing. But obviously, since this is about your career, you got the carte blanche for your pearl of advice. So, Steve, what's your pearl of the podcast? I should have saved my, my uh, craven remark for my pearl. That really <laughs> was the pearl of pearls. Yeah. You spread it for everyone else to know about it. But it's just, it's too... To find out what you really want to do, what you really like, what you really love, and just go with it and keep going with it. And just now, the other thing we did take care of, I may want to bring up, is we took care of the Manalapan Memorial Day soccer tournament, which my son played in when he was eight years old. He's now 33. So it was, I took care of it for 20 years, from 1999 to 2019. And we took care of Everybody who, who came, there were 300 teams playing, and I set up a tent. They set up a tent, 20 by 30 tent. We had five tables. I had all kinds of positions, sports medicine people, athletic trainer, other people, and we saw over 100 people in the two and a half days that it took place. And I had everything. I had supplies that I brought from, from my clinic, Supplies that Aircast provided to us, supplies they got. And so we had ready with everything. And that was really the, the, the number one pearl of, of my time was to do that. And I trained a lot of people who went on to become athletic trainers and went to medical school, stuff like that. So again, I touched people and I touched the, the, the uh, Manalpin Soccer Club because they, uh, they really ran a great tournament. And us being there because we we would we would do concussion stuff with people we would put put people in, in ankle boots and stuff like that and the the one that we see every year would be some 12 year old girl who would quote sprain her ankle twist her ankle who would turn out to have a fibula distal fibula fracture mm-hmm. and we could put them in a boot and say just stay in this boot for a month and it'll be all better and they would be and also, we were because Aircast donated their supplies, we never had to ask for anything back. We'd give stuff out to anybody. And, and that was really a wonderful piece of, of what I did. So that was the most rewarding thing because you could see it and the people would come back. And they, would, they would get it. They have a, a, an abrasion. You could heal that up for them. You could put stuff on there and make sure it's saved. And you could 
put on a donut to protect the area. I would teach everybody all different techniques I knew. And so that was another wonderful part of my of my life. So that's the final pearl. Well, fantastic. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Rice for joining us today and talking to us a bit about his journey over his career in pediatric sports medicine. When we talk about the tree of sports medicine, uh, Dr. Rice definitely is one of the roots of those for ped sports. It's truly been a pleasure being able to, to work with Steve on various projects, and I've always appreciated our conversations. And certainly your encouraging words to me over the years at meetings, and I know many of us have certainly benefited from your leadership in our field. Please be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com and be sure to also follow us on Twitter at PedSportsPod. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.